Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up from the Ministry of Family Life, it's author, speaker, and radio host Dennis Rainey offering insight on how parents can apply biblical principles to raising their children. Then it's Jim Garlow of San Diego Skyline Church who's pursuing a new assignment leading the church's outreaches in D.C., New York, and Israel discussing how scripture speaks to important cultural issues. And from First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, it's Robert Jeffress providing some perspective on how Christians can follow Christ in experiencing a life that is satisfying and reflects God's purpose. And on this edition of The Intersection, from Guidestone Financial Resources, it's O.S. Hawkins relating principles from the book of Nehemiah to illustrate some valuable life lessons. Plus, she led MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers International, and she offers a unique look at prayer based on the model of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, incorporating honesty as well as abandon. You'll be hearing from Elisa Morgan. Finally, in the aftermath of 9-11, author and historian William Federer of American Minute offered a look back at instances in history involving Islamic attacks that occurred on the same day. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. For years, Dennis Rainey served as president of the Ministry of Family Life and a few months ago turned over the reins to his successor. He's also heard on the daily radio broadcast, Family Life Today. He and his wife, Barbara, have co-written a new book entitled The Art of Parenting, Aiming Your Child's Heart Toward God. With words of encouragement for parents, this is Dennis Rainey. Well, when they handed us our first uh, daughter back in 1974, uh, I kind of wanted to turn her over and find where the instructions were, because it, it was a living human being. It's like, here's God's given us this responsibility. What are we supposed to do? And here's my conclusion, and it's in this book. We've taken all of our experience over the past four decades, and we've tried to answer the question, how can we help a reader be successful in the three most important relationships in life? God, spouse, and children. And this one is primarily focused on children. And so basically what we've done here, Bob, is like the, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's of education, we've come up with four, four fundamentals for parenting. And I think what you'll find in this book is the essence of what God expects of us as parents, and there's four of them. I took the better part of three decades studying the scriptures, asking the question, how does God parent us? Well, here's how he does it. Number one, he teaches us how to love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, what did he say? Love God and love others. We were made for relationship. And so the first assignment for parents is to train their children and how to receive love, first of all, from us. Secondly, how to give love to others. But then third, how to ultimately turn that love toward God. The second fundamental is character. This is the book of Proverbs. Being wise and not a fool. Choosing right and not wrong. It's shaping the ability of your child to be responsible and do what is expected of him as a man, a woman, a, a, a husband, a wife, a dad, a mom, a grandparent. All of life taps into our character. Third, identity. Barbara writes a great chapter in this, in this section of the book about our emotional identity. I think 
Most people don't know what to do with their emotions. As parents, we're to train our kids to know what to do with their emotions. So there's emotional identity, sexual identity, and spiritual identity. That's the assignment of a parent with with his or her child. And the final area, I think, is one where parents are really missing a phenomenal opportunity. And it's it's the issue of mission. If you go to the the book of Psalms, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, it, it, it tells us that children are, are a blessing, their heritage, their reward. And it says, blessed is he whose quiver is full of them. They're like arrows. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Don't miss the motif here. A child is like an arrow in the hand of a warrior. What's a warrior doing? He's in battle. What are we to do with our kids? I think we're to train our children to know how to make a positive impact with compassion, with love, with grace, but to make an impact for Christ in their generation. And so this is really interesting, Bob. Just this past week, Barbara and I uh, had lunch with our oldest grandson, who is going away as a, as a graduated senior uh, to college. So we sat down with him, and we talked about all four of these areas and how his parents had trained them in each of these areas. But we talked to him about being on mission, being on assignment, and fulfilling that assignment to the best of his ability. He's going to Biola, and a young man from Arkansas, his eyes are going to be wide open in California, I promise you. (laughs) But he's got to know where he's headed. He's got to know all four of these things and uh, embrace them as he grows up and becomes a a young man and, and later on fully a man. That was Dennis Rainey here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website familylife.com. Next up, it's Jim Garlow. He served as senior pastor of Skyline Church in San Diego and now works with the church's ministries in Washington, New York, and Jerusalem. He shared material relative to the book he co-authored with David Barton entitled This Precarious Moment, Six Urgent Steps That Will Save You, Your Family, and Our Country. This is Jim Garlow now. In the very end of December of 2016 or early January 2017, it, it was like the Holy Spirit really pressed on my heart that the nation had a very short window of time to address four issues, crisis issues. And the first one was racial healing. The second one was immigration from a biblical perspective. The third one was a proper relationship of reestablishment with Israel, proper relationship between the U.S. and Israel. And the fourth one was a revival and renewal of thinking among millennials. Now, those are not surprising ones. Most Christians would have some awareness, but those four, I felt like we had a short window, not just the Trump administration, but the church had a short window of time to address those. And in that time, since then, uh, the third one has been uh, greatly addressed. That is a proper restoration of a relationship with a, with Israel. Uh, we happen to be privileged to go to Israel and attend the opening of the embassy there. And so many wonderful things have happened in that arena. But the other three, we have not seen any progress. In fact, it, it might even be actually slightly worse. And I think the church stands at a crossroads to to address these in a way that helps bring healing to our nation in all of these. 
So as you look around, obviously, Pastor Garlow, you are a local church pastor. You have been for quite some time, but you're also someone you're heard on national radio. You are very involved in the church at large. Tell me what you're seeing as far as the condition of the church today. Well, I wish so much. Uh, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I, I really wish I could give you a really positive report there. Uh, quite frankly, there are many signs for encouragement, but the fact is the, the church is largely self-neutered. Uh, the, the church is so hesitant to speak out on issues. It's becoming less bold and uh, more intimidated, and the, and the result is we've allowed ourselves to be boxed in a corner. I'll give you an example. Fifty years ago, if I would have said, uh, abortion is killing a baby. That's murder. They, people said, yes, say it today, and, oh, pastor, you're too political. But I said 30 years ago, the act of, or practice of homosexuality is unacceptable to God. Of course it is. But to say it today, oh, pastor, you're too political. And so it's just, it's just kept moving the line. If I, if I had said uh, 10, 15 years ago, well, the, the national debt, that, that's too high. That's, 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 that's a theological biblical issue, and thou shalt not steal from future generations, say it today. Well, Pastor, you're too political. If I'd have said eight years ago, we ought to have a right relationship with Israel. Uh, yeah, okay. Say it today. Oh, you're being political. And so it's just the closing in on the issues about which we can speak. And if you do an analysis of the of the rhetoric, do an analysis of, of the language, do an analysis of the sermon topics of pastors in the early part of this nation, they preached based upon what was in the news that day. They gave people perspective. They gave people direction. And what's happened today is, as pastors have said, we just preach Jesus. Now, that's good. Preaching Jesus is great. I preach <laughs> Jesus yes. every Sunday. I give opportunity for people to receive Christ. But we also should preach what Jesus preached, and that's the kingdom. What's the kingdom mean? Kingdom means that Jesus is king. That doesn't mean he's prime minister. It doesn't mean he's president. He's not running for a four-year term. He's king. He's in charge. That means He's king over all, over everything, over every aspect, not just of our personal lives, our family life, our church, but over every aspect of culture, over government, for example. God's, God's the one who thought of government. Unfortunately, there's, there's far too much silence in the church on these issues. In fact, the surveys from Barna show that 90% of pastors agree the Bible speaks to all the present-day governmental and political issues. But in that same survey from George Barna, 90% of pastors, I'm rounding the number off here, 90% of pastors said they would not speak about those topics themselves. Now, that, that's really unfortunate. So we have a highly uneducated, uh, low literacy, biblical literacy in the pew. And according to Barna's research again, uh, he, did a, uh, he did it years ago, and then he updated it recently, about 92% of people in the pew do not have a biblical worldview and of the 320,000 churches in America, only 100,000 of them consider themselves actually truly biblical, uh, would be evangelical, biblical, and taking the Bible seriously. And when I asked Barna how many of those 100,000 actually have a bona fide biblical worldview in all aspects of life, he said somewhere between six and 10,000, uh, we think, in the United States. That's, that's why we're in the situation we're in currently. Jim Garlow here on The Intersection. His website address is jimgarlow, G-A-R-L-O-W, dot com. Robert Jeffress is senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and he's written a book entitled Choosing the Extraordinary Life, 
God's Seven Secrets for Success and Significance. In a recent discussion with me, he discussed principles of Christian living related to that book. Here now is Robert Jeffress. Number one, discover your unique purpose. Secondly, determine to influence your culture. Extraordinary people know they are here to make a difference in the world. And in too many Christian lives, too many churches, uh, but Christians just gather in their holy huddles and talk to themselves or talk to one another. They forget that God placed them here to affect an ungodly culture and affect it for his glory. So you have to determine to influence your culture. Thirdly, I say there has to be that time in your life when you burn the ships. That is, decide that you're all in for God. Uh, Elijah did that when he said to the Israelites, okay, it's time for you to choose. If Baal is God, serve him with all of your heart. If Jehovah is God, serve him, but quit wavering between two opinions. And we talk about those burn the ships moments we all have to have. Fourthly, wait on God's timing. You know, Elijah burst onto the scene with Ahab, and then God told him for the next three and a half years to go hide himself. He spent three and a half years in solitude, I'm sure thinking God had forgotten about him. But the fact is, waiting time doesn't have to be wasted time if we learn what God wants us to learn during those waiting times. Next, unleash the power of prayer. You know, Elijah's power was due to his prayer life. He knew how to pray effectively. And I say, if you want to see God do big things in your life, pray for God to do big things in your life. And Elijah shows us how to do just that. And then we touched on the sixth secret, way, uh, uh, learning how to handle bad days. They're inevitable. We need to learn how to learn from them and not be paralyzed by them. And then finally, seventh, uh, extraordinary people live their lives with the end in view. They know their time on earth is extremely limited, and they spend their time leaving a godly legacy that will outlast them. And we see Elijah doing that before he was caught up into the whirlwind of heaven. He invested, he passed on to his faith to his protege, Elisha. Well, let me ask you to give us a very short history lesson, if you would. You mentioned this concept of burning the ships. What's the origin of that phrase? Well, it all came from uh, the 16th century explorer, Hernan Cortez. Remember, uh, the Spanish explorer landed on the coast of Veracruz in Mexico to capture Mexico for Spain. But he knew that between Veracruz and the capital city of Mexico, his men would have to traverse 200 miles of cactus-infested, snake-filled territory. And he knew the journey was going to be so hard that at some point the men would be tempted to revolt and retreat. And so on Veracruz, he ordered the men to burn the ships, making retreat no longer an option. And we all, I think, have to have uh, those burn the ships moments in our life when we really determine that we're all in from God. I'm not going to retreat in this marriage. I'm not going to give up this ministry God has called me to. I am all in for God. That's really the key to success and significance. Well, the name of the book is Choosing the Extraordinary Life. I wanted to key in here in our closing moments of this conversation. When you use the word choosing, that obviously communicates very powerfully that we do have to make choices, and those choices need to be informed or influenced by Scripture, right? They do. And by the way, Bob, they're not once-for-all choices. It'd be nice if we could make a once-for-all choice to do these things and never have to worry about it again. But the fact is, 
A successful and extraordinary life is made up of extraordinary years that are made up of extraordinary months and Hmm. weeks and days and even hours. These are choices we need to make every hour of every day. But when we make these choices and look back, we'll be able to look back on a life that has a short list of regrets and a long list of people we've impacted for God. And there obviously has to be something take place after a choice is made or after you make that mental decision you got to do something, right? What, what what would you say would be the the next step or series of steps? Well, I would say, first of all, get the book, because again, the book <laughs> isn't based on my thinking. It's based on the, the eternal and practical truth of God's Word. But I think as you go through these different choices that you make, remember, they're choices that we have to make all the time. And by the way, get uh, and I talk about this and how to handle a bad day. Be sure you're connected to other believers who will help you keep making those choices. You know, Elijah, after he had his bad day, he was off in a case by himself, God said, it's time to leave the cave and go get connected to other people. Robert Jeffress here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the Pathway to Victory website at ptv.org. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. You will find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The podcast is available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also at the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. O.S. Hawkins is president of Guidestone Financial Resources. He's a former pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, as well as First Baptist in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. In a recent conversation, he discussed principles from the book of Nehemiah, about which he writes in the book, The Nehemiah Code, It's Never Too Late for a New Beginning. This is O.S. Hawkins now. What I really believe that book is about is an encouragement to each and every one of us that it's never too late for a new beginning. I mean, There are people who are trying to get a new beginning vocationally, uh, some who've been through divorce, some who've been through the death of a spouse, some just going to college, some just getting out of college. Uh, All of us, in one way or another, whether it's an athletic team, a business, a church, uh, we're all uh, looking for a new beginning. And so Nehemiah really lays out how, how it's never too late for any of us to have a new beginning. Well, that is awesome. And people playing a little word association might hear the name Nehemiah and they think about his life having something to do with rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. How do you see from the way that Nehemiah lived his life and approached especially this task, what does he teach us about a new beginning in our own lives? Well, you know, Nehemiah was not a prophet and he wasn't a preacher. He was a he was a layman. He was a civil servant, really, worked in the court of Artaxerxes. And uh, those Jews who had been in exile to Babylon and Persia for 
uh, a few score years. Some of them went back and they began to rebuild the broken city of Jerusalem, the burned wall, the broken walls and burned gates. And the task was so enormous that they just quit. And uh, Nehemiah heard the report from Jerusalem that the walls were still burnt, broken down, the gates burned, they were reproached to God, and he just had a tremendous burden to go back, motivate, mobilize those people that were there to rebuild those broken walls. And he went back and put together some principles that enabled those people that had seen those walls left broken for years to rebuild them in 52 days. It's an amazing incredible story about how to have new beginnings. And uh, as you mentioned, the book actually has five different sections, each section corresponding to a characteristic of a successful rebuilder. Elaborate, if you would, on these different characteristics. Yeah, well, you know, one of the, the first uh, the first section has to do with the fact that if you're going to rebuild anything, you've got to get started right. And, you know, I play golf. That tee shot's the most important shot in golf. If you hit the ball into the woods or if you dribble it off the tee, you're scrambling to try to make a par. But if you hit a good tee shot, that first shot down the middle of the fairway, you're presumed to do something. So it's it's true in life. It's true in rebuilding that getting started is, is the first thing. And what Nehemiah did, he got back there to Jerusalem. First thing he did was make an honest evaluation of his situation. Then he identified the need. He took personal responsibility and then he moved people to get out of their comfort zones. You know, Bob, most of us live in comfort zones. Some of them are socioeconomic. We don't have anything to do with anybody that's not in our socioeconomic circle. Some of us have comfort zones that are political. Uh, there are all kinds of comfort zones that we never break out of. And so first thing he did, he got started right. Then he knew the importance of building a team spirit. He started with his goal in mind, seized his opportunities, motivated his people, to get off dead center, stayed on track, and then then he introduced that principle of delegation. I call it he let let go without letting up. And uh, one of the most important things we can do in delegating is to set some clear, have some clear objectives with some specific tasks. He picked the right person for the right job. You know, so often we try to rebuild. We we put the wrong person in the right job or the right person in the wrong job. But one of the most important things he did to get his people to follow him was that he led by example. And that's one of the greatest things we can do, no matter who we are, in the home, at office, at work, wherever it is, in the church. Uh, Gideon, before he went out to fight the Midianite host, and his army was down to 300 people to fight those thousands of Midianites, the last thing he said to them in Judges 7-7, he turned around looked at them and said, do as I do. And generally, that's what we end up doing, doing as we do. So there are all these principles that go into it uh, related to rebuilding. O.S. Hawkins here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website, oshawkins.com. Alisa Morgan is next. She is President Emerita of Mops International and shared some insight based on Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as she relates in the book, The Prayer Coin, Daring to Pray with Honest Abandon. Here now is Elisa Morgan. You know what, Bob? I kind of stumbled into it, which <laughs> is how many of our discoveries and our relationship with God are. I, I began to read and began to notice that Jesus prayed a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. 
He prayed it repeatedly. In fact, if you really look at it, it's probably the prayer most prayed by Jesus in Scripture because he prayed it over and over. Three of the four Gospels have it verbatim, and then John references this prayer, and it is this. It is, Father, if there's any way, take this cup, yet not my will, but yours be done. And as I stumbled on that and thought, my goodness, he's praying two seemingly opposite prayers in one sentence. How does he do this? Just that, God, this is what I want, but what do you want? And and I called it honest. This is what I want. Take this cup and abandon. But what do you want, God? Not my will. And I began to just struggle with that and think, well, A, how could Jesus pray take this cup when that's the very reason he came to earth was to take the cup so that we could be in relationship with God. But of course he was human and he didn't want to face the, the condemnation and the amazing, horrible torture and then the ultimate separation from his father. And so he bluntly said, take this cup. This is what I want, God. So so you really have those two sides of the coin, if you will, obviously the inspiration, this whole image here, where on, on one hand, Jesus making that request, take this cup, on the other, uh, other side, really just submitting himself to the will of his Father, saying, not my will, but thine be done. So as we look at the application of these two elements, just in the prayer life of a Christian believer, what does this mean for us, and how can it really revitalize or help to improve our prayer life? Yeah, that's exactly it, Bob. Yeah, two sides of Jesus, two sides of prayer, the prayer coin. Um, When I think about it, I think we tend to pray either honest or abandoned, not both. You know, we pray, oh, God, this is the stuff I really, really, really care about. And Lord, would you please come and be present with me in this illness, in this relationship, in in this job need, in my, my struggle with a family member, and then that's where we stop, you know, just blah, blah, blah. It's like we, we hmm. vomit, pray out to God. Or we might be a kind of a person who prays more abandoned. Oh, Lord, whatever you want. You know, I am simply a humble human being. I have no desires here. I turn my life over to you. You know, whatever you want. And, and the, the thing is, what really Jesus models for us is that we can pray both sides as he prayed both sides. We can tell God exactly what we want. And then we can trustingly yield to what he wants. And that's what ultimate intimacy is with God. You know, Jesus prayed back and forth, pivoting this prayer coin from honest to abandoned, from what he wanted to what God wanted, because of his intimate relationship with the Father. And really, I, as I look at the prayer coin, it's a, it's a currency that was minted in this crucible garden, and that, you know, God really lavishly spent to redeem us, to pull us back to himself, that we can have that same kind of intimacy, too. And if he would do that, if he would create this prayer coin, wow, shouldn't we spend it in prayer Hmm. as well? Elisa Morgan here on The Intersection. Her website address is Elisa, E-L-I-S-A, Morgan.com. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, its author and historian William Federer 
He's written a book called What Every America Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam and the United States. He discussed significant events in history involving September 11th and historic facts regarding Islam and the operation of radical Islam. From that conversation, here now is William Federer. He goes into the minority neighborhoods in Medina, and he finds people who have grievances against the Jewish government, and he organizes them into a following. When the following gets big enough, he pressures the Jews to accommodate him and his followers politically. They do make a treaty. Now Muhammad's a political leader. When Muhammad's followers in Mecca get confrontational and chased out of town, they are Muslim refugees. They come into Medina as Muslim immigrants. And Muhammad allows them to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, his attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. He gets a whole chapter of the Quran. It's Surah 8, Chapter 8. The title is uh, Spoils of War. It's how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. One of the verses, uh, uh, 3350, says, Allah has given you the slave girls as your booty. And so Muhammad has 300 warriors, and they're robbing these caravans. The Meccans send a 1,000 soldiers to escort and protect their caravans. Muhammad defeats him at the Battle of Badrop. He's outnumbered 3 to 1. This victory convinces him to be a military leader. He fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. And so that model is the Sunnah. That's the example. You go from a religious to political to military. And so there's 1,400 years of conquest where they conquer Egypt, which used to be Christian, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel. They conquer North Africa, which used to be Christian, used to have 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa. They invade Spain, hold it for 700 years. They conquered Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine. They conquered Syria, which was completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. And then they conquer into what is today Turkey, used to be the Byzantine Christian Empire. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation are conquered by the Muslim Turks. They conquer Constantinople, and then they finally surround Vienna, Austria. Uh, and so as they're spreading west, uh, there's three major battles quickly uh, that I'll refer to. One is on the Mediterranean. Uh, the Muslims are conquering, and there's this little fortified island that's withstanding them. It's called Malta. And the Knights of Malta are led by this 70-year-old guy, Jean Lavalette. And he tells his knights, uh, you vowed to give your life for Christ when you joined this order. Uh, guess what? You're going to have to give it now because we're not getting any reinforcements. So 40,000 Muslims surround Malta. They pound away with their cannons. And these guys courageously fight back. And miraculously, they kill the Muslim admiral, uh, in, and he, the Muslims sail away on September 11th. 1565 is the first mm. major defeat of the Muslim Navy, September 11, 1565. Fast forward uh, to 1683, same year William Penn is founding Pennsylvania. You have 200,000 Muslims surrounding Vienna, Austria, and uh, they are um, starving them to death, and they send a message to King Leopold saying, await us in your residence, so we may decapitate you. It's looking really bad. But then the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, he brings 80,000 Polish soldiers, Germans, and Austrians, and they come to Vienna's rescue on September 11th, 1683. Mm. Uh, he has the largest cavalry charge in history up to that date, 40,000 big Polish hussar horses, and the soldiers had made wings for their back. And as these soldiers are charging down the hill, it makes this enormous flapping noise, sort of like a plane taking off. 
and the Muslim warriors drop their weapons and flee. And so this is, uh, uh, Jan Sobieski is considered the savior of Western civilization. Uh, so that's September 11th, 1683. One more, a couple years later, 1697, the Muslims invade Belgrade, Serbia. And there is uh, this European general named Eugene of Stavoy, and he kills 30,000 of the Muslims. And the victory date is, guess what, September 11th. 1697. After these three major battles, the Muslims begin to lose more and more and more. Western Europeans develop more technology and cannons and so forth, and the Ottoman Empire shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until finally, after World War I, the Ottoman Empire is disbanded and gone. And so September 11th, in the fundamentalist Muslim mind is sort of like the Gettysburg for the Confederacy. It's the the peak, the highest point of their Muslim Ottoman Empire. And from September 11th, uh, in these uh, three dates, they begin to retreat and contract until they're finally gone. And so the thought is they pick that date to restart their attack against the West. William Federer here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website AmericanMinute.com. We're nearing the end of this edition of the Intersection Podcast. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you could listen to or download full conversations featuring recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. You can also get connected to the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you go to faithradio.org. And through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Or you can go to faithradio.org, scroll over the programming tab. You'll find a link to the Meeting House homepage. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.